are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. The conversations we're releasing today are really special. How often do former factory management and a union leader get to sit down for a candid conversation? For me, at least, it's a first. And to be honest, it's also something I thought would never happen. Not because I wasn't up for it, but because past attempts at this kind of dialogue failed to move past the tired stereotypes and conventional narratives about workers versus factory managers. And the fact that this conversation is so candid and succeeds at getting beyond those stereotypes is really a credit to Kong Atet. Atet started out in the fashion industry as a factory worker and is now the president of the Coalition of Cambodian Apparel Workers Democratic Union, which he refers to by its acronym SIKADU. His big picture take on relationships between factory management and workers is nuanced, insightful, and disarmingly open. Let's the thing about this candor of conversations. The fashion industry desperately needs more of them, whether between suppliers and brands or between factory management and workers. But it requires openness from everyone involved, openness to hearing what the other side might have to say, but also openness to acknowledging the ways in which we were fallen short, the ways in which we are implicated. And if all of this weren't special enough, we're also joined by Dr. Mark Anner. Mark is a professor of labor and employment relations and director at the Center for Global Workers' Rights. He's also author of the report "Abandoned: The Impact of COVID-19 on Workers and Businesses at the Bottom of the Global Garment Supply Chain." Both Atet and Mark were panelists on the sixth edition of GZ Fabrics online seminar series called "Getting Through the Crisis Together: Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry." During that webinar, Mark suggests that workers and factory management are fighting over an increasingly small size of the pie, so to speak, and that instead of fighting over their respective shares, workers and managers should be collaborating to increase the size of the pie that they must share. In part one of this conversation, Mark shares some context: how big exactly is the piece of the pie we are talking about? And what's his dream scenario for what worker and factory management collaboration should look like? Atet and I, Atet in his capacity as union leader, and myself in my capacity as former factory manager, debate Mark's vision. Is it crazy? And how do narratives that pit workers and managers against one another end up inadvertently hurting the cause, so to speak? In part two of this conversation, we get into the details. What exactly blocked my trust as a factory manager in workers and unions? What could or should workers and factory managers each do to gain one another's trust? We also get into the exhaustion that pervades all levels of the fashion industry and how the squeeze from the top manifests itself on the factory floor and in the relationship between workers and management. Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with GIZ Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast. 
or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Atet, can you tell us a bit about how you got your start in the fashion industry and what you do now? Yeah, I, I was started in in the factory uh, in 1998. So, yeah, so I, I left the school and then uh, looking for the job. So luckily, I got the job in one of the factory uh, in Phnom Penh until 2002. Uh, I got uh, dismissed. Uh, due to my union activity. So you started out on the production floor and then you were let go because of the union activity. And where did that lead you? And can you give a, a bit of a sense of what you do now? I mean, I don't know about the labor law or I don't know about anything or I don't know about trade union. What I know at that time, just try to help each other in in, in the workplace uh, when they are facing with uh, a challenge or facing with like, you know, unfair uh, practice in, in the factory. So it, you know, it kept going on like that until I became a union activist. So, and then I became uh, union volunteers in Sikadu. So I got elected also uh, general secretary of the coalition of Cambodia, yeah, of the Sikadu uh, Federation. And then in 2006, I also became uh, the national gen- national union general secretary called Cambodian Labor Confederation. Yeah, yeah, it just kept going up, going on like that until now. Yeah, Mark, I want to turn to you and have you tell us equally a little bit about your entry point into the fashion industry and how that sort of led to what you're you're doing now. So my my pathway to the industry is. Uh, bit different. So of course, I'm from the US. I was studying in, in Boston. I soon after graduating in my early 20s, I moved to Central America. Um, and I ended up in El Salvador in the late 1980s, working with the labor groups, worker rights groups. And in 1988, I had a chance to visit a garment factory for the first time. There was a delegation of unionists from Norway. This factory was unionized and we wanted to do a tour. That was my entry point, 1988. And it was an experience that sticks with me until this day because we went into the factory. Uh, The factory owner, the Cuban-American woman, took us around and she told us that she recently faced a, a very significant crisis. And the crisis was the minimum wage had gone up by 10%. And she was doing just cut, make, and trim. She wasn't sourcing fabric or anything else, which meant labor costs were almost all her cost. I mean, it was at least 70% of her cost were labor costs. And those costs just went up by 10%. So the story she told me was that she was making little girls' dresses for Kmart. And she called up Kmart 
and said, I'm sorry, there's been a change in our cost structure. Um, wages just went up by 10%. I can't do it. The time she was being asked to do it for a dollar a piece, a dollar a dress to sew them together. And Kbart's response was, no, you're, you're calling us to change the price point. The price point is what it is. It's a dollar a piece. And she's telling me this. And she said, there's one question and only one question. Can you make it for a dollar a piece? And she continues and she said, and then they said, if you can't, it's not a problem. With one phone call, we can move everything to Haiti. We have a facility there that can do it. So I'm walking through the factory and it's buzzing. I mean, it's just buzzing with uh, activity. And I said, well, somehow you solved this problem. What did you do? And she said she went to her office and got on the loudspeaker system and said, starting then, the uh, production quota system would be changed. And roughly she increased it by uh, 10%. So if you were doing uh, 60 operations an hour, you now had to do 66. That was my very first experience. And it was a bit jaw dropping. And here we are, what, 32, 33 years later, and I'm still looking at this question of prices, work intensity, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I was back in the U.S. a little bit, um, got a master's degree. I went back again to El Salvador in the 90s. And then a very big campaign had started. And I wasn't involved initially in this campaign. And it focused on the gap. And it was uh, looking at a factory called Mandarin, which was Taiwanese owned. And it was one of the very first campaigns. There were a series back then in the early 90s. Uh, Liz Claiborne, Kathy Lee Gifford, mm-hmm. and the Gap was one of them. They negotiated an agreement, um, the Gap and the group in the U.S. that led the campaign, for these workers who had formed a union. They were all fired, um, about 350 of them. And they agreed in New York City that those workers should be rehired, but they didn't know how to implement this. And I'm living in El Salvador, and um, and I end up get th- getting thrown into this. It ends up being a nine-month process. We were doing everything from radio ads to newspaper ads to track down these workers who had been fired uh, unjustly uh, performing a union. It was a crash course in the industry, and I was in a, I've had a very fortunate place. I was constantly, every single day, I was talking to representative, vice president of sourcing from Gap. I was constantly talking to the owner of the factory, uh, uh, entrepreneur from, from Taiwan. And I was constantly, constantly talking to the to the unionists and the, and the workers. And that, that really gave me an enormous insights that have helped me to, you know, to this day to understand the industry. And then just quickly to wrap up, I mean, eventually late 90s, I left El Salvador, came back to the US, got a PhD at Cornell. Which I suppose led you to your work now as a professor, uh, a professor of labor and employment relations, and also the, the center director for the Center for Global Workers' Rights. It's a pleasure to get to know you both a little bit better. So thank you for sharing a, a bit of your stories with us. I want to go right into the meat of things. One of the things, Mark, that you said in the sixth edition of the GIZ Fabric webinar series, which both both of you participated on, um, the Getting Through the Crisis Together, you put forward this idea that basically factory owners and factory workers in the garment industry are fighting over an increasingly small piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, and that, you know, instead of fighting each other, factory management or owners and workers 
should be working together to increase that size of the pie. I just think it's such an interesting idea because, you know, it's so true. And a lot of like, a lot of narratives that I hear around sustainable fashion are really seem to sort of pit factory position, factory managers and factory workers against one another. Um, and it sort of like ignores the elephant in the room, which is that the lion's share of the pie is actually going to someone else. So before we get in, so we were really interested with this episode to have a chance to have a conversation you know, what could this collaboration look like? But before we get into that, I would like to ask you, Mark, to give us a bit more context. You know, how big is the piece of the pie that we're talking about here? Just to go back to the very first experience, 1988, right, that $1 a piece, which doesn't budge, and the management responds. Now, imagine that happens again and again, and now you're getting up to higher production. And then you imagine the, the tensions and imagine there, I don't know what happened afterwards. Imagine it was a factory where there wasn't a union. And now the workers feel so squeezed by this intense production quotas, they try to form a union. The factory manager feels like they're not going to get any support from this case, Kmart. And it's an all-out battle. And tensions rise. Trust totally breaks down. You could have all sorts. So, there, And just sitting there watching that happen... And realizing, like you said, you're very clear, there's an elephant in the room that's just sort of standing back. And not only that, sometimes they're called upon by the worker side to say, hey, help us. So that's it's just that's even the ultimate piece of it. So with this question, of course, you know, I have to say um, these are, you know, I don't say they're tentative figures, but these are figures, you know, as well as I do, probably far better than I do, how much this changes per item, right? So just to give you an example on extremes, you can have a basic fashion, basic cotton t-shirt on the one hand, and you could have, you know, a sort of uh, high fashion content uh, dress on another and the price, you know, the quality of the fashion, all that stuff is going to change dramatically. So when I tried to figure this story out as many ways as possible, and one of the things I did was to go to courses on how to do, as if I was a designer, how would I, I design a shirt and then how do I do the pricing? So this is what I was taught. You, and, you, and this is a very interesting part of the dynamic. You design a product, then you figure out the price point you want to sell it at, and then you work backwards and you sort of figure out the, the, the you know, the, get the markup and so on. And my point is, I think we need to change that logic around. But the slice of the pie for cut, make and trim for this model was 4% of the final sales price. But basically it's the sales price before taking into consideration what percentage of the product has to go into markdown. Okay. So it's the, that's how you initially do the pricing. Um, so 4% was cut, make and trim. Big point of the pie, the, that final sales price, 4% is going to cut, make and trim. Now, what is that? And I've, this is from my own survey uh, research when I was at, yeah, I did surveys of, um, of suppliers, both in India and Bangladesh. But you basically get down to a percentage going to labor, production labor, which is was 40% of that 4%, if you will. Yeah. And you have overhead and, and, and profits, which is 13%. The, the factories I was studying, the numbers I was getting, and I could confirm this, you know, Bangladesh, there's a, a Dhaka stock exchange. You could actually look up profit uh, mm. um, uh, margins. The profit margins were going around 3.5 to maybe 5% in that, in that range which from years before, the standard was more around 10%. But, you've, but the point is you've got 
this small piece of the pie and you've got standard other expenses. You get your electricity, your rent, you've got your trim, mm-hmm. but you've got the fundamental question of that small piece of the pie. What goes to workers for their labor and expenses and what is, is for management for their profit margins. And they're fighting like crazy over this very tiny piece of the pie and it's getting tense and the tension gets worse and worse and worse. Meanwhile, that, and I've, looked at you know, years of data and graphs about the price going down and down, you know, make the shirt for me at $2, make it for $1.90. Negotiations, and you know this, Kim Tim, that could go down not just to pennies, but to fractions of cents. And it's getting more intense now with, with COVID because there's such dramatic overcapacity. So my point is they squeeze the pie and almost like sit back and watch. And these tensions are getting yeah. crazier and crazier. And and th- that's, in reality, the hardest obstacle to overcome because in, in many of these countries, we're now really looking at decades of, of conflict and distrust as a result of this, of this model. Um, so that's, you know, we've got to turn this on, on, on its head. And here is sort of my dream scenario. You start off with discussions, discussions, negotiations, if you will, over the total cost of decent work. So what is it for the, the wage level, some concept of a living wage? What, are, what is it for proper hours of work? What is it for proper work intensity? What is it the, for safe buildings and so on? That is discussed in country by the actors that are, that are involved in this and know that best. Then the discussion goes to the uh, to the buyers, whether they're buying houses, mm-hmm. whether they're retailers, whether they're brands, and say, this is the cost of, of you know, decent work to use that language, which is ILO language. And therefore, you know, that has to be when you come up with the, the price point for that. And it's, it's doing two things at once. It's on the one hand, technically coming up with those numbers. But on the other hand, perhaps more importantly, is presenting a a sort of a I don't know if moral argument is the right word, but it's, it's presenting a humane discussion saying we in Bangladesh or we in Cambodia, the relevant social mm-hmm. actors came to this together. So it gives that added weight to the proposal. It wasn't just some arbitrary uh, manager saying this is the right point. So it's endorsed by the relative access. So it puts, I think, um, the, the the buyers in a in a in a position. I just, okay, I just one last point I want to say with all this, <laughs> okay. because this all might sound like pie in the sky. This model was done for decades in the U.S. in the early to mid-1900s uh, um, with these jobbers agreements. It was, it was uh, tried, practiced, and, and very successful. What you say about basically having factory management and workers associations coming together and putting forward a number when it comes to, well, agreeing and then putting forward a number on decent work. It sounds so obvious, so intuitive. But the thing is, in practice, you see exactly the opposite. You see unions coming out or different various, whether it's a union, whether it's a research organization, whoever it might be, a campaigning organization coming out, putting forward numbers on what they think a decent living is in various countries. And then like the factory owners and the factory management sort of put out their own figures. And then the whole conversation is focused on like the fight between these two entities. And it's like, I mean, 
you know, that it, it, I've said this to both of you before, but it, it just, and to Jesse, Jesse and I have had a lot of conversations about this. It just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth because it's like, I mean, it just, it tastes like colonialism, you know, in the sense that it's like, you know, this is this sort of dividing and conquering of marginalized groups is exactly like the tactic that was used by so many colonial empires to maintain control over various populations. Adet, what do you think of, of Mark's vision, of the vision that Mark has put forward? Nothing, nothing else exciting me more to try to build this uh, momentum, you know, like uh, to to transform from the I don't know you you describe as a colonial uh, form format or, or, or setup. To me, uh, this everyday uh, fight between the union and 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 the supplier, we 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 are became like a circle game we we running uh, around the circle so I, I don't think we go we 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 reach any anywhere or any destination that we we all hope i mean if we if we talk about fairness and fair share and we talk about bring people out of poverty line you know like especially the 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 government's uh, worker so this is this is the the strategy if we look at the goal, we have we have the same like, uh, but now we have a challenge that what is the what is the what is the locking area? You know, like how to unlock it. In 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 your view, what yes, what so, are the things that prevent that? Yeah, that is that is a, a, a first culture. I think it's a it's a long culture of of you know a lot of let's say education in the media and all this always always say that this is the two big enemy you know that that is one foundation that pop up in the mindset i mean if you look at if you look at the the the, the broadcast and the media and the education have you heard any strong group that try to dissolve this kind of culture no it's still this existing so so I don't think we are here really <laughs> attempted to to resolve this at least in Cambodia, you know, to my because every day they we saw in the news that employer exploit workers. Employer exploit workers. You know, you know, like like if you look at all the, the, the news mostly like that, right? Yeah, and then on the factory side, I think most factory managers also have very deep, deep distrust of unions and of their workers. At least that was my experience in, in Cambodia. Of course, from your from your your perspective, some group of workers also using the power game. That that's no denial about. The solution is I mean to bring the 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 put the eye and the, the, the perception of the worker uh, to look at best practice, I mean, to look at the the, the practice to bring the, the best practice to to publicize it, it's 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 a very good because because if you not con- promote that, then the whole society only see this fighting, fighting, fighting. You know, so this is very emotional. From I mean, we are human, right? So very emotional. Yeah, the worker is the victim, and employer is the I from my side. I I'm not like trying to be teaching anybody, but uh, 
I would say, I mean, when you when you lost in something and then you blame the other, so you are a hopeless case, right? So so that's why I I try to convince and educate all the worker that affiliate to my federation or not affiliate to my union that when you are not able to fight for your own uh, food and you have, for example, like you have uh, 60,000 workers and then you don't know how to unite it, right? So then, uh, uh, and then you, you start to go, you know, alone, you don't become union nine. So I'm, there is a lot of homework that the union and, the, and especially the worker and the employer, like I say, has a lot of homework to do. And from my union side, also have a lot of homework to do, right? In order to become a strong institution. Yeah. And, and the factory side has a lot of homework to do too. These narratives, which really have been put out by, I think, Western activists about employer versus employee who have all the right intention that, in fact, this is sort of hurting the cause. The subtext so often in conversations around sustainable fashion seems to be like the implicit point of departure seems to be that like brands care about their workers, but they just struggle to keep these like unruly or unwieldy suppliers in check. And then you have brands sort of coming out and saying, oh, we support their workers. The size of the pie hasn't changed. There's something really perverse about the sort of moral positioning or, or actually the, the moral monopoly that sort of is often claimed by brands. And that monopoly, I think, really depends on the continuation of workers and factory management being sort of pitted against one another. That in the last year, there have been some suppliers who have started speaking out about purchasing practices. And I'm curious how you receive these and how you think what your experience is in terms of how workers per, you know, perceive these calls and whether they are optimistic that it could ultimately lead to a bigger piece of the pie for them, or if you're more, more skeptical. It has to start mm -hmm. from the beginning with inclusiveness. If, if uh, the, the, the supplier alone uh, privately uh, receives this pie, so uh, I, I would say maybe in Cambodian practice, maybe 10% of them will be kind. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, that is my experience. Let's give a very... Uh, relevant to my experience. Yeah. But you know, I feel the same. As a former factory manager, I also really didn't trust my workers. I didn't trust that I didn't trust that my colleagues sort of wanted the factory and the company to succeed even. And I'll get into why that was in part two, but I think as a starting point, this is really powerful, right? To even just to be open about the fact that we're talking about how workers and factory managers could collaborate to increase the size of the pie. But as you say, at that, I think there's very little trust on the worker size, side that if the pie increases, it will go to workers. And I think there's very little trust on the manager side, management side, at least in my personal experience, that workers will be willing to be, be reasonable in terms of um, 
how to slice up that pie. And I know that probably sounds problematic, and if there are any labor rights activists listening, you probably have alarm bells going off, but I'll get into a little bit more about why that was and why my perception was the way that it was in, in part two of the conversation. When I hear Mark, I was so shocked to hear the pie is so tiny, like for only 4% of the entire pie for cut and sew. And when I hear Atet, I totally agree. I totally agree with his description. In this case, suppliers and the workers are just chasing each other along the circle. There is no way out, especially if you know they are fighting for just within the 4% of the pie. Then I also totally agree with Atet that how can you ensure or how can you win the trust from the workers to say, don't worry, we are going to bring back a bigger piece of pie and we are going to share with you. But uh, I also understand, Kim, what you said when you say you became nervous. I am thinking right now, this is about trust, but I'm thinking if we imagine this is a forest, I don't think trust is a tree you need to plant. I believe you have all sorts of seeds in the soil already. And you have the seed of trust in the soil already. So maybe the question is, what blocks trust? I mean, what makes you, Kim, as a factory manager at the first place? What blocks your trust about your, your workers, let's say? And Atet, as a work union leader, at the first place, what makes you feel you just cannot trust this person? It's not like there's no trust at all. It's not like from day one. You guys hate each other. And on that note, we're going to leave you for this episode. But please, please continue to listen to part two, which we've also released today, when we get into the nitty gritty details about, on my side as a factory manager, what blocked my trust in workers and in unions. And on Athet's side, what, you know, his view is on what blocks worker and union trust in factory management. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.